going to do some review and pick up where we left off uh, your handout today. You're so blessed not to have to fill in the blank, but I still gave you uh, pens and clipboards in the event you want to scribble and write your own notes or draw your own caricatures. You're more than welcome to do so. But um, you'll see a number of familiar statements and verses from last week in your handout. I did that on, on purpose because I know that most will probably not bring their handout from last week. And I don't want to spend much time in filling the blanks, but I want to review some things and also some things that were added uh, that I wanted us to focus on here today in regards to the belief of one God, you know, why one God matters. Um, we opened up last week talking of Matthew 16, 13 through 17, the occasion where Jesus takes the disciples aside and asks them, who do people say that I am? And they begin to answer what people say, think, and believe about Jesus Christ. They begin to say, some think you're this prophet. Some people think you're that prophet. Some people think this, that, or the other. But then Jesus boils it down. He says, I want to know who you say that I am. And Peter piped up, and sometimes he gets it right. Other times it's just basically the foot and mouth syndrome. Uh, but in this moment, he gets it right. He says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. You are the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one, the Son of the living God, the incarnation of Almighty God, the living God. You, that's who you are, Jesus. And then he says to him, flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father which is in heaven. This revealing, this revelation. And we'll talk about that in a little bit. But Jesus wanted to know the disciples uh, uh, to understand that there are various beliefs about him, but he wanted to know their beliefs. And it's important that we recognize that God is interested individually with each person as to what you believe about him, not just what church you are a part of or what assembly organization you are a part of. God wants to know, what do you believe about me? We need to have a personal belief about Jesus Christ, not just an organizational belief or an assembly belief, a personal belief about Jesus. We talked about Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5. That is basically the staple, the foundation, the cornerstone of the monotheistic faith, the Jews' faith, the revelation of hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. This is the foundational belief of who God is. And we stated that no matter what scripture you find yourself reading, you have to arrive at the conclusion that God is one. We can, every now and again, come across a scripture that can cause us to be puzzled, to scratch our head, but always come back to this, that the answer, the conclusion is one. And we stated also that the Jews, they had it through their house, they had it on their apparel, but when they left their house, they started the day with one God. And after whatever they faced and whatever they entered into, they came back to one God. That's what they came out of their home with, one God. They came back to their home with one God. That is what we must do in our house of faith, is come back to one God. Jesus quotes this in Mark chapter 12, verses 29 through 31. Jesus' approach, they ask him what is the most important commandment of all. And Jesus quotes what we just read in Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. 
Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy mind, with all thy strength. This is the first commandment. The second is like, namely this, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. There is none other commandment greater than these. So Jesus said, this is the greatest. This is the most important commandment of all. That is Jesus' perspective, which is kind of important. So the question we pose is, is this a big deal? Why does it matter, this belief of one God? Well, these are some important verses for us to review and to consider and to have tucked away in our heart and uh, to revisit. First John 4, 3 says, Every spirit that confesses not that Jesus has come in the flesh is not of God. And that spirit is a spirit that is antichrist. doesn't mean you are the antichrist, but it is a spirit that is counter to God, counter to his word. And so the point here is that an incorrect view can mean we're not of God and we're of a spirit we don't want to be a part of. I don't want to be a part of no Antichrist. I don't want to be a part of anything that's not of God. And so he says here, John, who was uh, arguably the closest to Jesus, the most emotionally, intimately involved with Jesus Christ, he says, any spirit that does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. John eight twenty four. Jesus says this, if you believe not that I am, ye shall die in your sins. So not only does the Apostle Paul say it, but Jesus Christ himself says, look, if you don't believe who I am, it can leave you remaining in your sins, dead in your sins. And so I don't want to have the wrong view of Jesus that would leave me in my sin. I want the right view of Jesus that would take me out of my sin. And so this is a topic of controversy, 1 Timothy 3.16. Without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen of angels, preached to the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up into glory. So don't be surprised, you know, if you start talking about who God is, uh, that somebody gets worked up or emotional about it. Because the Bible says this is an emotional subject. This is an emotional topic. It's going to bring these kind uh, of uh, conversations and controversies. But the mystery, though it has controversy, is not an unsolved mystery. Remember as a, a child, there was a show that we used to watch. Uh, there's a lot of things I used to watch that my parents didn't know about that I never had no business watching. But it was the one that always scared me, and it was called Unsolved Mysteries. It was like this creepy music and this guy with a very deep, resonant voice. And I had nightmares all the time from this afternoon show of Unsolved Mysteries. Well, you don't have to be afraid of this. This is not going to be an unsolved mystery. This is something God has designed for us to know. The mystery is great. Yes, but God was manifest in the flesh. That's what's so great. This mystery of godliness is that God was manifest in the flesh. God revealed the answer to this mystery. And so it's not God's will for us to remain in the dark about uh, who the light of the world is. Why would the light of the world come to leave us in darkness about who he is? That doesn't make any sense. He came to reveal light. He came to reveal truth. God wants to make known this mystery. Colossians one twenty seven, it says this, to whom God would make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. 
And so God wants to make known mysteries. God wants to make known things about him. And it's not too difficult to understand. Going back to, again, we're doing some review here. 2 Corinthians 11.3, Paul had a concern of fear that by any means the serpent, as he beguiled Eve through his subtlety, would through your minds also be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. And so our flesh... The devil wants us to think this is too complex, we won't get it, or he just simply simply wants to keep us from ever knowing who Jesus is. Now, we can break it down all we want, as basic, as simple as possible, because it is a simplicity that is in Christ. But as we read in Matthew chapter 16, there is the element of revelation that comes from God. You, 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 could, you could approach it philosophically. You could try to approach it rationally. You could try to approach it in an elementary manner. doesn't matter what approach you take. At the end of the day, there is an element of revelation that cannot be removed from this equation. He told Simon Peter, flesh and blood did not reveal this to you. Um, it's, it's our Father who is in heaven. God unveils. God reveals when somebody is ready, when somebody is open, when somebody is in that right setting, God is ready to floodgate their minds with illumination of the light of the world and take them out of darkness. Paul reiterates this in 1 Corinthians twelve three. He says this about the Spirit of God. He says, no man can say that Jesus is the Lord, but by the Holy Ghost. It is a revelation. Now, somebody can make that statement. That doesn't mean it's by the Holy Ghost, because you could say a lot of statements without revelation, without understanding. You know, you could just repeat information and it not be revelation. But he's saying that there is a moment where you realize that Jesus uh, is more than man. Jesus is more than prophet. Jesus is more than teacher. And Jesus is more than just some aspect of deity Jesus is the Lord. You know, it, we may not capture it in the English writing, in the, uh, the, the, the uh, dynamic equivalent of New Testament and Old Testament, but when a Jew would say, when he would speak in the Greek, the only way he was the kurios to say Lord, he was literally saying he is Jehovah. He is Lord Jehovah. And he says for someone to come to that arrival to say Jesus is the Lord, Jesus is the Jehovah. Jesus is the Old Testament God. He says that's a Holy Ghost revelation. It's a spirit revelation. First Peter chapter 1 and verse 13. It says, gird up the loins of your mind and be sober. Hope to the end for the grace that is to be brought unto you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. This is why revelation of who Jesus is matters. Because grace is brought to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ. People have a lot of opinions about Jesus, but until you know who Jesus is, you don't access what he has. And he has blood that was shed. It is the blood of God. The Bible says in John 4, 23 and 24, God is a spirit. A spirit does not bleed. The Bible says in Acts 20, 28, God purchased the church 
with his own blood. The only way there can be a blood purchase was there to be a sacrifice on earth that God was manifest in, that God embodied, that God dwelt in. And so Jesus is the lamb that was slain. Jesus is the lamb of God. And so when you have that revelation, we have access to that grace. But if the devil can steer our minds away from who Jesus is, then we can remain in our sins. And that's what the devil wants. He doesn't want us to be delivered. He doesn't want us to be saved. He doesn't want us to be redeemed. He wants us to be as lost as he is. Because, you know, the devil sinned and we sinned. But the difference is God is offering us redemption. And that ticks the devil off. That God would give redemption to another aspect of creation. The devil was created by God. But he doesn't get this chance to the blood of Jesus to be redeemed. But humanity does. And that is why the devil fights so hard against us in the kingdom of God. Because God is going to redeem us from our sins. It's his desire. And so some believe the history of Jesus, but they don't believe the mystery of Jesus. Uh, you've heard me state it before. If you've ever listened to a documentary or if you've ever uh, read, uh, say, National Geographic when, they, uh, when it comes to times around Easter or Christmas and you read the literature, they'll say this historical Jesus. They, 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 they'll, they'll acknowledge the history of Jesus, though they hate to do that. Uh, they did everything they could to not acknowledge and to debunk the history of Jesus. But now it's irrefutable. It's undeniable. There's way too much evidence that Jesus actually walked and talked and lived and breathed on this earth. So they believe, as hard as it is for them to do so, that there is the historical Jesus. They believe the history of Jesus, but they don't believe the mystery of Jesus. The mystery of God is God manifests in the flesh. That Jesus is not just some mere man, historical figure. He is what he claimed to be. He is Lord. I, I can't remember which uh, apologist stated this, um, but they would say, you know, you got to choose. Jesus is either Lord, liar, or lunatic. One of the three. He's, he's going to fulfill one of those three. And uh, we as Christians with the revelation, we don't believe he lied. We don't believe he was a loony. We believe that Jesus is Lord. He is who he claimed to be. So 2 Corinthians 5.19, Paul breaks it down as simplistic as possible, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. God, Father, was fully in the physical body of Jesus on this earth. Matthew 1.21, the angel said this is the name to, be call, to call him Jesus because he's going to save his people from their sins. He is Emmanuel. In Matthew one they they're referring to Isaiah 7.14, that he is God with us. So this child that is born, his name means Jehovah, my salvation. God, uh, a great verse that I love that you could write down is uh, Isaiah 12.2. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid, for the Lord Jehovah is my strength and my song. He has also become my salvation. That's when that scripture is fulfilled. God became salvation. It's a beautiful verse of uh, revelation. So Jesus could forgive sins only because he was God with us. Uh, once more, again, I know we're doing a lot of review here, but it's for a purpose. Isaiah 9, 6 says, Unto us a child is born, a son is given. This child, this son, is called the mighty God, the everlasting Father. It's very important that we realize it's not a Christmas card. This is a prophecy about the birth of Jesus. 
He's born as a child. He is a son. But it is possible that this child, this son, is the mighty God, the everlasting father. Just like I'm a son, I'm a husband, I'm a father. That doesn't make me three separate people. You know, there, uh, he, I am one person and I have one name. Though son, husband, father are different roles, attributes that I have. Uh, basically, the scripture will use uh, language such as that to help us to understand God is infinite. God is eternal. And he's trying to un- help understand the mortal, the finite, to comprehend something about the infinite. And so that's why the Bible uses language about the hand of God, the eyes of God, you know, because God is a spirit. We don't totally register that, but he's using in terms we can understand. We understand hand. We understand eyes. And so that's what it means by father, son, spirit. And it's not confined to that because he's not just only father, son, spirit. It's lion, lamb, bread, door, way, life, truth. You see, it goes on and on and on. But we would never begin to break down God into that many persons or people or entities if we understand that the Bible is trying to communicate attributes and nature of God. And just like me, as a, as a husband, I don't kiss my wife the same way I kiss my mom. You know, when I give my wife a kiss, it is as a husband. When I kiss my mom, it is as a son. It's a different way I'm interacting. And I'm so thankful that God operates that way. The Bible says there's some people he saves by fire. Other, you know, he saves in such a tender, soft way. Me, uh, my carcass was, was saved because it was a hellfire brimstone that alerted me and awakened me and pulled me out of where I was. That's how God is. He, he will meet you where you need to be met at to save you and to redeem you. And that's why some people, they're more, they, they lean more towards the, the lamb side of God. And others lean more towards the lion side of God. And it's not that God has a split personality, but God works with us the way in which we need to be worked on and worked with. But at the same time, we don't need to put God in one corner and just hang out with that attribute of God. I want all the fullness that I can learn about him involved in my life. And so uh, John 14, 6 through 10 uh, is is when Jesus begins to speak to the apostles. He says he's the way, the truth, the life, and no man can come to the Father but by me. Controversial statement. And he says, if you know me, you should know the Father. And uh, you've known him and you've seen him. So Philip's confused. He says, okay, Jesus, show us the Father. And Jesus says, Philip, haven't I been with you so long that you have not known me? He that has seen me has seen the Father. How are you saying, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and the Father in me? The words that I speak to you, I speak not of myself, but the Father that dwelleth in me. He doeth the works. So Jesus expounds what we just read in Isaiah 9, 6, that this child, this son, is the mighty God, the everlasting Father. And so Jesus is fulfilling prophecy and owning that verse, saying that verse applies to me. I'm not just a son. I'm not just the child of, you know, Mary, and uh, I, I am the mighty God. I am the everlasting Father. And so the question is, is Jesus part of God or all of God? Colossians 2, 9 and 10, in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead 
bodily, and you are complete in him. And Godhead means the divinity of God or his divine nature. And it says all of God's fullness dwell in him bodily. So in the body of Jesus was the absolute, complete divinity and divine nature of God. Not part of God, but all of God. And the Jews understood what Jesus was saying. That's why in John 10, 31, it's not the only time, but multiple times they would pick up stones to kill him or to push him off the cliff because they understood what Jesus' claims were. Jesus says, what? Okay, you guys are about to kill me. I'd just like to know what you're going to kill me for. And he says, well, we're not killing you because you're claiming to be a man. We're going to kill you because you are claiming yourself to be God. That's why they wanted to kill Jesus because they did not believe who he claimed to be. And Zechariah 14.9, again, prophecy about Jesus Christ, that it says the Lord will be king over all the earth. And in that day will be one Lord, his name one. This is a prophecy about the millennial reign, a thousand years of Jesus' reign. And it states the Lord, Jehovah Father, will be king and his, he will be one and his name one. But when you read the New Testament, it reveals that the Lord, Jehovah Father, is Jesus in the millennial reign. It's not a contradiction. It's a revelation. It's not the Bible in the New Testament saying, well, I think we're just going to do something new. I know what we said in the old, but let's do something completely, absolutely, radically different and start, you know, afresh and new with who God is. No, this prophecy is revealing who's going to sit on that throne and rule and reign, that Jesus indeed is Jehovah, is Lord. Revelation 19, 16 declares that when Jesus comes on his thigh is a name, King of kings, Lord of lords. And so he is the supreme being in authority. In Revelation 20 and verse 4, they lived and reigned with Christ a thousand years. In Isaiah 45, 22, 23, we're almost caught up here. It says, look unto me, be saved, all the ends of the earth. I am God, there is none else. Unto me every knee will bow, every tongue will swear. And so here again, the Lord Jehovah speaking, there is no other God, no one beside. To me and me alone is every knee going to bow. Well, Paul speaks to the church about revelation, is that he quotes this verse, that unto Jesus, that name that is above every name, that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That's who is referenced in the Old Testament, Lord. This Lord, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess. And now Paul doesn't bring contradiction. He brings revelation. Jesus Christ is Lord. And this is to the glory of God the Father. And so uh, this, this understanding does not undermine another person in a Godhead, but it gives glory and lifts up the one true living God. Um, moving forward, we'll, we'll go to 1 John 5, 7. I'm just going to save a little time here. I, I'm reviewing a little longer than I thought I would. But there are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, the Holy Ghost. These three are one. As we stated, no matter what Scripture you and I read, an individual must arrive at the conclusion that God is one. And that is what the apostles did. They didn't struggle with this idea, Father, Son, Spirit, and then try to explain, uh, well, it's a mystery, you can't understand. Uh, No, he says the answer is one. 
at the end of the day, the answer is one. Why? Because that's what we've always believed since God revealed himself way back when to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Moses. And Jesus, when he came, he says that's the greatest, most important command of all, that there is one God. God wasn't deviating from that revelation. And without rehashing through all the notes here in James 2 is the devils know there's one God, and they tremble. And this revelation of one God, hell is afraid of it. Hell trembles at it because when there is a people that have a revelation of who Jesus is and we are persuaded and believe the devil cannot stand against that one God because that one God was uh, is what kicked Satan out of heaven. And we now have Christ in us, the hope of glory, the revelation of who the mighty God is. And we can approach any adversary with complete confidence and authority. Now, Second Corinthians 3.12, we didn't go through this last week. Spent all that time to get here. Seeing then that we have such hope, we use great plainness of speech. And that is such a different approach that when you read with the early church uh, fathers is what they'll call them, you know, early church history, that they don't use great plainness of speech. They use deep coded philosophy to try to convey the deity of God and who Jesus is. And throughout the time, if you've ever read some of the writings of, you know, early church fathers of, you know, whether it be the Wesleyan brothers or, you know, Lutheranism, and you you read through all all those writings, I mean, there's just like this, like, highly educated approach. It's like, why do you have to go to school and learn a whole different kind of English and another language to try to get some concepts that are being conveyed? And I'm not against higher learning. I'm not against higher education to uh, explain and expound things about God. I think that's very important because there is a segment of society that is how you communicate and convey to them. But you don't have to be of a segment of society to reach them. Point in case would be Paul and Peter. Paul was best qualified to reach the Jews and ignoramus, you know, Peter was best qualified to reach the Gentiles. But what did God do? He used a fisherman to reach the Jews, and he used a, a, a scholar to reach the Gentiles. So it's not about, you know, your personality and your genetic makeup and intellect if you can reach a certain segment of society. If you have God's favor on you and you've got God's anointing on you, you can reach whomever. So, uh, but Paul, though he was eloquent, he used great plainness of speech. And so I believe that this revelation, we can use great plainness of speech. He goes on here in verses 13 through 17 of 2 Corinthians 3. Starts talking about the Old Testament. And he says, Not as Moses, which put a veil over his face, that the children of Israel could not steadfastly look to the end of that which is abolished. Their minds were blinded until this day remaineth the same veil untaken away. In the reading of the Old Testament, which veil is done away in Christ. Basically, every time they read, they read with this veil. They read through this lens. Remember, I think I mentioned it last week, that anytime you read the Scripture, you got to read it through the lens of Deuteronomy 6.4. you got to put on one God glass, glasses and prescription when you read the Scripture. Somehow, some way, though I may not get it in the moment, it's still one God, one God. But he says the Jews, when they read this, they have this veil that they cannot see beyond, and they cannot see Jesus for who he is. Verse 15, even to this day when Moses is read, 
the veil is upon their heart. Nevertheless, when it shall turn to the Lord, the veil shall be taken away. So when, when they realize this one Lord Jehovah, and when, when Jesus is presented and they turn to him as Lord, it's when the veil can be taken away. It's when, when a flood, a, a flood of gates of revelation and illumination of this light of who Jesus is. If you can turn to the Lord by faith, believing that he's one, there's one God. I may not understand it, but this Jesus is Lord. This Jesus is God. It says when that is removed, the, the veil is removed when this happens. It goes on to say here, the Lord is that spirit. Where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. So the veil in the Old Testament is what separated the people of God from the very presence of God. Remember, you, you, you had that uh, um, incremental approach to God. You have the altar, and then you get to the brazen laver, and then you get into the holy place, and there would be uh, the table of showbread, the candlesticks, and, and uh, the altar of incense. And, and when you were in this holy place that was enclosed, the outer courts was open air, though it was surrounded by a, a, a curtain, um, it was still open air, but when you went into the holy place, it was enclosed. But there was a curtain yet in another room in front of you that was divided by this veil, this curtain. And, um, and so the Bible says that this veil, they still look through that veil, but when you would get past that veil, you would get to the very presence of God. And they would bring once a year an atonement, the blood of the Lamb, and sprinkle it on this mercy seat. And that is how they would obtain mercy for their souls for a year. Their souls would be rolled ahead and or their sins would be rolled ahead for a year. And so that is the veil is being talked about. But Jesus came to tear the veil. Mark 15, 38, when Jesus died on the cross, the Bible says the earth shook and the veil of the temple was rent in two from top to bottom. Look at this, Hebrews 10, 19 and 20. Having therefore, brethren, boldness, where they were scared to do it before, but now we can have boldness to enter into the holiest place because of the blood of Jesus by a new and living way which he hath consecrated for us. How do we do this? Through the veil. That is to say, his flesh. The greater revelation is that the flesh of Jesus is a veil. If we can see past that veil, we can see the light of the revelation of who Jesus is is past the veil was the presence of God past the veil was the mercy of God past the veil was the very pre- it's what people long desired to do in the old testament and very few ever could do but because Jesus came to remove the veil to tear the veil to pierce the veil to rip the veil now we can get into the very presence that's beyond the veil the Bible says the veil is his flesh 2 Corinthians 4, 3 through 6. If our gospel is hid, it's hid to them that are lost, and whom the God of this world hath blinded the minds. Talking about the devil. The devil has blinded the minds of them which believe not. So, people that do not have revelation about who Jesus is, never heard about who Jesus is, it is a ploy of the devil to shield their minds, to blind their minds from this revelation. This revelation is so important The devil blinds minds of people so they cannot access this gospel. Because remember, the grace of God is brought to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ, is what Peter said. And so it says this, the minds of them which believe not, lest the light 
of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. If you could look at Jesus and not just see a teacher or a part of God, but you could see the image of God, that is when you can have the light shine through. He says in verse 5, we don't preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord. Remember, this is the emphasis that the apostles make over and over again. Jesus Christ is Lord. Now, that's easy for us to say, but for a Jew to hear that and for a Jew to state that was extremely difficult to say Jesus is Jehovah. Jesus is uh, he's God. That's who he is. And so and that's when the conviction came uh, in in Acts 2, 36, 37, 38. He's preaching and preaching. But once he said, uh, God hath made the same Jesus whom you have crucified, both the Lord and Christ, then they were pricked in their heart because they realize he's he wasn't just a man and he wasn't just Messiah. He was God incarnate he was god in the flesh that's when the prick came that's when the conviction came and when conviction came revelation came and if people can ever get that the revelation of who jesus is we go on reading here it says this in verse six who god for god who commanded the light to shine out of darkness has shined in our hearts why to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of god that's in the face of Jesus Christ. The veil is what covered the light and the glory, which is the manifested presence of God. But once, if the devil can blind our minds from seeing the light of the knowledge of the glory of God that is in Jesus Christ, we remain blinded. But what did Jesus do? Remember, the Bible says the Jews read through this veil. But the Bible says that veil is his flesh. And that's all the Jews can see is the flesh. That's all they can see is that aspect of who Jesus is. But Jesus says when he came was to tear the flesh so you can see past the flesh. Because once that veil was torn, once that veil was ripped open, you can now see the presence of God who was beyond the veil, who was past the veil. One example is John 20. Verses 24 through 29, and we'll wrap up here. I thought I was going to be able to get to a slide today, but I'm not going to be able to today, I don't think. Verse 24, but Thomas, one of the 12, called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. This is when Jesus died, buried, and he is now resurrected. The other disciples said unto him, we have seen the Lord. But he said unto them, except I have, shall see in his hands the print of the nails and put my finger into the print of the nails and thrust my hand into his side, I will not believe. And after eight days again, his disciples were within and Thomas with them. Then came Jesus. The doors were shut and Jesus arrived. He stood in the midst of them and he said, peace be unto you. And he said to Thomas, reach hither thy finger. Behold my hands. Reach hither thy hand and thrust it into my side. Be not faithless, but believing. And when Thomas was there and he saw the veil that was torn, he saw past the veil. He could see now past the prints of the hands. He could see past the piercing in his side. He could see past the veil. And he was able to make this statement. My Lord and my God. 
he got the revelation of who Jesus was. Why? Because finally the, the veil was removed. The veil was torn. And we need to have that one personally, to have that veil removed, to have a personal revelation of who Jesus is. But at the same time, when we pray for this community, we need to pray for those who see through a veil. They see just a little bit. They see kind of, they see images. But what God wants to do is to tear that veil, that veil of tradition, that veil that's been handed down to them, and let them see that past the veil, past the flesh, is my Lord and my God. I love the revelation of knowing that when I call on the name of Jesus, I'm not talking to a part of God. I am talking to God. I am talking. I can, by the boldness of his blood, I have now access past the veil because his veil was torn, and now I'm in the very presence of God, and I have access. I could sit at that mercy seat and get that mercy in time of need. When I fall short of God's glory, when I sin when I mess up because I do I am human but when I call on the name of Jesus boldly we can know this that we have access to mercy because the veil has been torn and the light has been revealed the light of the revelation of the mighty God in Christ God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son God so loved that he said, I'm going to do this once and for all. I am going to come, and I am going to be the Son of God, the incarnation of God in the flesh for the sacrifice of man's sins to make an atonement once and for all. Let's stand together, and let's thank God for who he is, that we can see past the veil. If God has removed the veil from your eyes, would you thank him? If God has helped you to see a little clear past that veil, would you thank him? If God has forgiven you of your sins, begin to thank him that we can boldly, by the blood of Jesus, step into the holiest place and we can get to that mercy seat of God because the veil has been torn. Jesus was pierced, his hands, his feet, his back ripped open, the crown of thorns on his head the spear in his side and because of that we now have mercy i love you jesus and i thank you and i pray in the name of the lord jesus christ for a spirit of revelation in watertown south dakota in this region in this state in this area god lord that those that look and they see the veil and they look through the veil i pray god that you would tear that veil and let there be a mighty revelation that sweeps across the land and somebody saying jesus name. Amen. God bless you. You're dismissed. We'll reconvene up here in about 15, 20 minutes.